Welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Club. My name is Jessamie G. I am not joined today by my beautiful co-host, Miss Alice Edie, but I am joined by our second Alice imposter in this little mini-series, the wonderful Andy Ballock. That's me. That's you. Cue me. Hi. Hi, honey. This is great. It's so, thank you so much for doing this. Thank what you for having me. An absolute treat. Well, now, <laughs> wait and see. Yeah. <laughs> I did jump This could the gun. go one of two ways. Mm. <laughs> um, well, I didn't make you Don and Alice wig, but you did do a Which, pretty, so I was going to say by. pretty good, but pretty bad South African accent. But I think maybe you for should. For someone give that's it a never go. been to South Africa, what this is. This is <laughs> It's just based on what I know. It's like, mm, how do I get into it? Okay. All right. No, it's so lovely to be here, Jasmine. It's lovely to have, it's lovely for you to have me today. It's lovely to be here today. I can't tell you how much I've really enjoyed the, listening to this podcast. I've been on the live episodes and the live episodes were wonderful. I, uh, live episodes. I mean, the, the one laugh episode that was the birthday episode. I loved being on the birthday episode. Um, so it's just, it's lovely to be here is what I'm saying. So thank you so much for having me. Can you imagine if it was that for an hour? (laughs) (laughs) You're sort of shocked that it went, that it was so fast. I was just wondering when it was going to end. But, Mm. um, (laughs) you know, the funny thing is I can't tell whether that is great or terrible. (laughs) Yep. That's my trick. Alice will let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone that has a South African accent is like, why does he sound like he's from New Zealand? <laughs> and England. Yeah. It's yeah. sort of like um, it's a wish wash. Yeah. Yeah. But look, hey, we had a go. Right? We, we had a try and that's what it's all about. <laughs> Show up. All I can. Try your try. best. Try. I'm not asking for perfection. <laughs> I'm just asking you to try, all right? <laughs> try, Tim. Try to run the race. It's just it's 50 metres. Just try. Sorry, I had childhood trauma there where I was a boy <laughs> called Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I should have been more clear. Not my childhood. It's just childhood trauma. Little known fact about Andy. He used to be a boy called Tim. Yeah, well, we all change. Now, for, for those <laughs> of you who did not attend or listen to the live episode, this will be your first time meeting the wonderful Andy Ballock. So, I'm Andy. so sorry about that. Yes. Well... <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> I love that you just stared off into space and for a second thought, what the fuck have I done? Yeah. I sort of have invited the bull into the china shop thinking, God, I've been friends with a bull for, for 24 years. What could go wrong? I've built such a lovely china shop. He's such a lovely bull. And now that he's in the china shop, I've made a series of horrible mistakes. <laughs> I am now realising the error of my way. Wipes a single tear away. Oh, no. Here we are again. But, yes, Andy, you and I have known each other for um, a ridiculously long time. Yeah. 25 years, actually, I Holy think. Holy macaroni. Yes, because I am 38 and I was 13 when we first met. Which is weird because I'm 27 and was 16 when we first met. So... It's funny I don't know how what, time works like that, isn't it? For me, it's very different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Almost illogical. But here we are. Here we are. And the thing that I'm kind of excited to talk to you about today. Mm. So for those who don't know, Andy, you are a comedian, yes. a writer. Yes. And anything else? Yeah, a producer, I guess. Yeah. Accounts. I produce 
live theatre myself. Yeah, oh, and, and that counts. And my other stuff, um, improviser. Yeah. Um, the general idiot. Yes, yes. I think yes. that's the biggest one. It's just general <laughs> idiot. I've taught improv. I teach comedy sometimes. Yeah, that's very cool. I do stuff. Yeah. I do all that. Yeah. Sort of in the same bucket of like a funny maker. Funny maker. Aww, I make, I make that's funny. That's what I call my butt. <laughs> funny maker? <laughs> yeah. Do you know my favourite joke in the entire world? And this is this is what's going to happen on this podcast is there's going to be so many tangents today and I'm sorry and also strap in. It's what the podcast is. It's okay, just great. a series of tangents. Okay, great. You're, you're in the right spot. <laughs> so my favourite joke of all time, and I think it's the funniest joke of in history, is pull my finger. <laughs> it's so simple. It's so clear. And even though you know what the punchline is, it's still funny because farts are funny. Farts are funny. It's a, It was like a meme or something I saw the other day that was like, I feel so sorry for people who don't find farts funny because you have exactly the same amount of farts <laughs> but none of the joy. <laughs> Right? The farts are there regardless. I don't know that that's possible. To not find farts funny. Oh, farts are just funny. I agree. They're just, and the and the pull my finger, it's the it's the worst magic trick. <laughs> it's so, because <laughs> you pull someone's finger and you make them fart. It's so dumb and it's so, and no one gets hurt and it's so silly and it's just, it's, it's my favourite joke of all time. Anyway, that's mine. Do you have jokes like in your back pocket, like joke jokes? Like like how many blondes does it take to blah, blah, yeah. blah? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I realised this like a couple of years ago that I have, there's probably 200 in my brain. Really? Probably more. Yeah. Yeah, of just like variations on one joke or just, because I like grew up like reading like those dumb joke books, but I love them so much that I think I've just, they're just in my brain. And some of them are just, some, there's one joke that's just like, how far can you walk into a forest? Halfway, after that, you're on your way out. Which is not so much a joke we call as it is joke? just a fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, um, why, why couldn't a skeleton go to the ball? Um... No, tell me. Because he had no body to go with. Oh. Like, but like this is like so from a dumb. joke book from the 90s that yeah. is like for a 10-year-old, really. Um, and I've just committed them all to memory. So they're all in there. Because I feel like it's a thing that you have as like a kid or a young adult maybe. Mm. Like you've got like as your average Joe, maybe a couple of go-to jokes in your Head, yeah. I don't think I have. I couldn't tell you one joke now. I don't think. What? Yeah, you know, I could. I could tell you thirty really quickly. Yeah, interesting. Which is, but I and I think like what that says is that from a very early age, I kind of yeah. was going in that direction anyway. And like, I was certainly like creative. Like I was a child actor, and I loved jokes. And I was a writer back then. So it was sort of, it was all there. Yeah. And now I get to do it, which is so dumb. It's so dumb. I was having this conversation with 
one of my friends, Luke, like two nights ago, because he's just written a children's book. And he was saying like he had an illustrator from the UK, um, but they dropped out because they were sick. But now he's got an illustrator from Australia uh, on board. So it's getting illustrated and it'll be published. And now it's like eligible for like Australian awards. And I was like, does do people not realize that we have no idea what we're doing? And he's like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm it's going. I'm like, right? Right? It's so weird. <laughs> no one's figured it out yet. I'm like, all right, cool. But this is the whole thing, right? And uh, the incredibly loosely held premise of yeah. this podcast being <laughs> around imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That everyone, I think particularly in creative industries, you're like, oh, no, someone's going to find out that I'm not, like, yeah. doing it properly. There's no fucking proper well, way there's to no do pro- it. There's no properly and art is subjective and comedy by extension is subjective. So it's like, well, you, I am never going to be perfect at it because there is no perfect. Um, the I just need to be better than I was yesterday. Yeah. So I just need to, like, keep on doing the work. But, there, but yeah, I think because because you understand that it's never going to be finished. Like a show will Mm. never be finished because it's different in front of every single audience. So I think like understanding that it's never going to be finished, it's never going to be done, it's never going to be perfect, does like play into that like imposter syndrome like, uh, and when are they going to figure out that I haven't finished the show? Is it in the the fifth time I perform it or is it the 20th time I perform it that it's like still, I'm still working on it? And no one's figured that out yet, so I'm safe. And it's weird, it's weird, but it's fun. At what point, so you're writing a show, right, and you've yeah. got, obviously got to get enough of it written to be able to perform it in front yeah. of an audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I imagine and I hear from, you know, other podcasts and stuff that I listen to from comedians that exactly this, you work out so much of it on the road because you might have an idea of where the big laughs are going to be or yeah. what works and what doesn't, but when you get it in front of an audience, it changes. Yeah. So to do you sort of like, as you get more experience with that, are you allowing a certain amount of like flex room or do you just sort of put it together and get out there and test it? Do you do like, what do you call them, test Yeah, test, shows? yeah, trial shows. Trial shows, yeah, someone. I'm weird and I don't do trial shows. For for Am I the Drama, I I was very lucky in that I had like other people's eyes on it. So I sort of was never like worried about whether or not it would work in front of an audience. I ran it through my comedy partner, Justin Porter. Uh, I ran it past him and he was like, cool. And like, he just didn't laugh at anything. He just like took notes which is real weird as well if you're like performing for an hour in front of someone and they're just taking notes. That sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. <clears throat> I'd have to stop and be like, are you, is this funny? Is this am okay? I, am I delighting you? Yeah. Well, <laughs> at the end, he, he goes, um, it's a really fun show. He's from Texas. He goes, it's a really fun show. I was like, okay, thank you. He goes, um, it's about two things at the moment. Uh, and it was, it was, it was about the queer experience and and bigotry. And then it was also kind of about um, white privilege and racism. And he was like, you need to pick one of those two things. And the queer experience and the bigotry is stronger and you've written more of it. So I would go with that. I'm like, yep, cool. So I cut like this other sort of like section out, which made the show way more stronger. Uh, and I was like, cool, cool, cool. Um, 
great. So like he fixed that. And then I ran it through my old comedy partner, Marcus Willis, um, who like gave me like alts on some jokes that I ended up using. And then I ran, it, I ran some stuff past Ruben. There's just a bin truck. It's fine. Oh. <laughs> Do we pause? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. <laughs> cool. Our listeners are used to this kind of professionalism. Oh, sweet. <laughs> um, anyway, so I'm very lucky in that, like, I uh, write for Ruben K, internationally acclaimed comedian. It's incredibly funny. And so I sort of, like, and I've been doing that for, like, two years, like, all through the pandemic and afterwards, um, sort of like helping him with jokes and like alting and stuff and like tightening stuff up. So by the time it came to my stuff, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like I sort of know what I'm doing and I gave like him some stuff and he would like go, oh, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I took some of those suggestions and some I didn't take. And so by the time it got to like putting it on stage, it was fully done. And mm. and like, cause you've seen it as well. It's not so much a stand up set as it is. I would say like a, a one-man show. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, and so I didn't, I think because of that, it doesn't need to be like bang, 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 like Reese Nicholson joke, 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 joke every single time because I was going for something different. So I was like, oh, they're as long as they're laughing at the stuff that they were laughed that I wanted them to laugh at. But there, there was this one joke in it that Ruben wrote that never gets a laugh, but I think it's funny and so it stays in. <laughs> and I'm like, no, nah, but it, and it's the only, it's too smart for the audience. I know exactly why it doesn't work. And after the first night, I was like, oh, this joke doesn't work because it's too smart and I refuse to take it out. And I just, and that's fine. That joke's for me. Yeah. I don't care that the audience isn't laughing at it. As long as I know why an audience isn't laughing at something, I, then I can choose to like take it out or leave it in. So... But yeah, so I don't do trial shows, which I, I, I mean, I guess I do like in front of those two or three people. But like, fascinatingly, after like doing that in front of Justin and him going, it's a really fun show. I was like, all right, cool. And then like we opened and I was like worried about like audience members like being like, oh, okay, oh, they, they seem to like it. And Justin's like, it's fine. It's a really fun show. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like, all right, it's a really fun show. That's that's all it is. So that's fine. I wanted it to be more than that, but it's a really fun show. That's great. And then I got nominated for the Kippo and I was like, Justin, I got nominated for the Kippo. He was like, yeah, it's a really fun show. I'm like, oh, that's as high as you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I was getting an A plus and I thought it yeah, was like a B minus. Yeah, I thought it was a C. I'm like, that's so middle of the road. He's like, no, it's a really fun show. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> that's the top. Sure. So the whole time I was like, ah, I thought the show was middling. It turns out it's good. It was fucking brilliant. It was, <laughs> it was honestly, I think by far the best show that you've done. It was incredibly 100%. smart, incredibly well-crafted. Um, and I want to ask you about some of the kind of themes that go through it yeah. momentarily. But before I do that, I'm interested, like staying on this sort of like audience being a, like they're a part of it, right? You can't yeah. have a, you can't record a stand-up show without an audience there and put that out in the world like you could with music or many other yeah. things. Like it needs. Yeah, it's a conversation. A conversation, exactly. Yeah. So then when you're sort of doing these first shows and it's continuing to evolve, mm -hmm. how do you know when you're sort of like making it better and building it in collaboration with the audience or you're 
pandering to an audience and maybe like you were saying, you hold on to that joke because you're like, fuck it. I love that joke. Yeah. That one's <laughs> for me. mine. So how do you know like what's, because you've got, there's got to be some sort of compromise, right? Because if you only did stuff that only you think is funny, then you can just do the show to your mirror and, yeah. you know. Well, then like what's the point in doing a show? My job is to make the audience laugh. Yeah. As much as I can. I mean, my job's slightly different as well in that like I also would like them to, to think about things and like yeah. have like an emotional connection, an emotional change at some points. Um, there are like, there are a few like, moments that evolved throughout. There's one, I will say like when I talk about my show, it sounds like it's the most serious TED talk because it is essentially about the queer experience with the, as somebody wrote, it's about the queer experience with the spectre of bigotry looming in the background. And I was like, that is what it is. Um, Also, it's so dumb. And like I play a witch called Cassandra who's stuck at the opera who isn't allowed to kill anyone. And it's just this like dumb non-verbal sketch. And that over the course of the festival, that got longer. And, mm. and it got so much longer because I I was having so much more fun with it. And it was just she became more disgusted that she couldn't kill anyone as like the festival went on. And it went from like, I would say a minute long sketch into a proper three minute like beat for beat sketch over the course of the the festival. So I think like that was probably both pandering to the audience and also fixing that and making it better because I was listening to the audience being like, oh, they like it when I grunt a little and go, (laughs) (laughs) with her arms crossed and she's so annoyed at the opera. (laughs) And it's so dumb. And so like, I realized I was like, oh, the longer I do this, the more, but there is a point where it becomes indulgent. And so you just got to like find that like sweet middle ground. But weirdly, that point where it becomes indulgent is different for every single audience. So that's the sort of part mm-hmm. that you have to go. So I learned over the course of the festival that that needed to be, that it could be longer and so it needed to be longer. And so I stretched it out, but like you, I inherently knew, oh, I've got to stop there because if I go further than that, they're going to get bored. Um, but that, yeah, distance is different for every single audience. And I think that's what I like about comedy is that it's constantly like whilst you are pandering to the audience, you're also listening to the audience and being like, oh, that that joke needs to stop here because they're they've switched off. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's there's a there's an element of improvisation that's always yeah. happening, even yeah. with a completely written show. Yeah. And I guess that's the difference between pandering as in like I'm doing something that is no longer that I'm not as into in order to make the audience laugh. Yeah. Because I'd say that's not what you're describing is less pandering and more like I'm enjoying this, they're enjoying this, we keep this going. So it's more responding rather than like letting it shape the show in a way that you would have preferred not to. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever do a show that I'm like, Oh, I don't want to do this show. Yeah. Because my number one rule is if I'm having fun, then the audience is having fun. Yeah. And there are so many times in that show that I'm clearly having a great time and it's so fun. And they're the moments I'm like, oh, this is really fun for me. It's clearly fun for an audience. And if it's not fun for one or two members of the audience, they're the outliers there. Yeah, fuck those guys. Yeah. (laughs) Get out. I've got your money. Leave. That's how I talk to a mid-show. No, get out. 
yeah. So I don't think there's like ever a worry of like me like pandering to an audience and doing like no. stuff that I don't want to do. Also because I think I'm like I'm old. I'm just so stuck in my ways and I'm like I'm not going to do anything just to be like, oh, I think this is what the audience will like. Like I'm never yeah. going to write a show being like, like I don't think I'll ever write a show like uh, like a traditional stand-up show because, one, I don't think I'm very good at it and, two, um, that's not what I want to do so I just won't do it. I would rather write these like one-person shows or one-person plays that like have like more of a meaning than like a traditional stand-up show. So, And I think it's very much that thing of like uh, you build it, they will come. And so that's what I want to do and that sort of was proved to me at Comedy Festival. I was like, oh, Oh, people do want to see this type of show as much as they want to see Carl Barron. Maybe not as much as they want to see Carl Barron. That was a terrible, he's playing at like the Athenaeum. He's doing fine. Um, <laughs> but like there is, there's a yeah. space for yeah. what I do. And so like, yeah, I don't think I'm ever just going to do, oh, here's an hour of stand-up. Yeah. I would find that really boring as well. Yeah. And if you were finding it boring, everyone would find it right? boring. Yeah. Um, so as you touched on before, I think what was so brilliant about this show is the the contrast between it addressing very serious subject matter, yeah. pretty heavy stuff, but also being the dumbest, so dumb. silliest <laughs> thing in the world. Because I said the- a snot came out of my nose. <laughs> it's, it's a podcast. Good. No one can see. We'll edit that out of the reels. <laughs> This is going to be the only real yeah. now. It's just you on repeat snotting. Snotting on myself. Cool. Um, just as I was trying to give you a compliment on uh, your brilliance. Yeah. And that's how my body reacts to it. I, <laughs> it shuts down. I lose control of all of my faculties. I wet myself and then I have to excuse myself and leave. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the Imposter Syndrome. <laughs> this is now an ad for adult divers. <laughs> We've been looking for a sponsor, Andy. It's Have you lost fit. control of your faculties during a podcast? <laughs> New nana naps. <laughs> They're nanny nappies for the oldie in you. <laughs> for any age. Anyway, continue. Anyway. <laughs> I, just, I warned you. It's, <laughs> it's fine. I knew what I was getting myself into. <laughs> Good. But what I was going to say mm-hmm. um is that, that contrast is so clever and I think there are some comedians that maybe it it errs, it drops off the cliff into something that feels preachy and then I think it's very hard yeah. to be funny and preachy yeah. at the same time. So I tried really hard in that show because I – Yes, for that exact reason um, that, like, it's also you can't <laughs> ask an audience because what the show genuinely asks the audience to do at the end is be better and try harder to be a better ally because people's lives are at stake. And it's sort of you can't ask for an audience to do that or get them into that emotional state whilst being above them. So you have to kind of show the audience, it was certainly like from my perspective, I felt I had to show the audience that like, I'm not, I'm not great. This is like, I've, I've said shitty things and I've done shitty things. 
Um, we've all done shitty things. Um, the the reason isn't like because I'm a bad person. It was like, and it sort of like goes through that in the show as well. Is like the '90s were fucked. They were cooked. Um, they were great, but also not great. Um, and so that's where like a lot of like my prejudice and bias comes from. Also, you know, I'm a cisgendered white male. Like the world was built by people who look like me and sound like me, for people who look like me and sound like me. So it's like uh, I have like, and I have that carrying around with me. And so it was really important to like address that and like very openly recognize that and say that so that then I could say, I'm going to try can you please try as well? Here are the reasons why it's important. Um, yeah, because otherwise you're just standing there being like, anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm better than you and you need to be good. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the what really stood out to me as this. I found it quite moving really and I think yeah. because it was in general a great show but also, you know, I've I've known you, these experiences that you we're talking about these changes in perspective over time. I was mm. right there with you. Yeah. You know, so it's. But we like went through that together. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was, I mean, that's sort of, that is the tale of children from the 90s and that we grew up with uh, this media landscape saying how terrible being gay was and that like everyone would die from aids and there was no way that you could be a an out gay actor and the lead in a movie yeah. um or the lead in a tv show like you just couldn't do that um that what that didn't exist there was no representation like the closest we had to representation was um will and grace or um later on we had the l word um we had like a couple of small we had queer as folk that mm-hmm. was small um, and British at the time. And it was sort of like, it was, and then also like the media itself, like being so homophobic, so very openly homophobic. Um, And on top of that, it was illegal to be gay in Tasmania until 1998. It's so fucked. Like, but also like. It's crazy. It was illegal to be gay in Victoria until 1983, the year I was born. Like, it's not. Oh, it was you that changed it. How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I fixed it. Uh, Like, it's It's just. And you forget it's not that long ago. Like, it's really not. And it's that's the landscape that we developed in. And so, like, we were taught those things by the time, by society, by um, our collective consciousness, by school, by our families that grew up in a more homophobic era. And so we've both had to like unlearn all of that behavior and all of those things. And it's taken some of us longer. It's taken me longer than it probably should have, but I'm fucking trying. And yeah, it's, I think I found that really fascinating and I and that's what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> no no specific question but I'm oh, just good. I was just doing that talking about where we've come from. I think mm. the tendency these days particularly with, you know, cancel culture etc mm-hmm. is to just completely erase 
how we got here. Yeah. And that's where you get that feeling of preachiness and and that feels kind of icky, but also it's just, it's not productive. Like it's, it's not at all. It doesn't help anyone to go, I am, I am great and I've always been great and I've never said anything that was wrong in my life or had a fucked opinion because of something that I was born into. Yeah. We all have, but the great thing is that you get to change with new information all the time. And that's, right? and that's going to keep happening. I mean, think of the conversation around, you know, trans people and non-binary people yeah. these days. Five years ago even was a completely different conversation. Yeah. Ten years ago wasn't a conversation at <laughs> yeah. all. You I st- know? I so- still think of like, like a, a fascinating thing for me are anti-vaxxers who they're, they're not anti-vaxxers because they hate vaccines. Like there's more going on. It's not that they've just chosen a side and they're like, nah, I'm right. Yeah. It's like, well, why? And it comes from like a distrust of authority. And then you're like, okay, well, why do you distrust authority? If you like keep on asking questions, you get to like these root answers, which, and I think if you just exhibit a modicum of empathy, you get to a point where you're like, oh, I I understand how you got here. I don't believe what you believe. I get how you got here. Um, and I think like that's a really good point to start from because otherwise we're just shouting at each other. Yeah. And that is not productive at all. And it's just like, ah, oh, yeah, I like, I believe in vaccines because I believe in science, but- that's just me. I'm crazy. Uh, <laughs> crazy like I'm that. Crazy like that. I just believe in science. But like I, but I have friends whose family members are anti-vaxxers, and and there's a reason that they're anti-vaxxers, and it's because you know they like they don't trust authority, and you're like, well, why don't you trust authority? I'm like, oh well, because <laughs> of the clear evidence. Like and you're like, oh yeah, well that's that's true. The government fucking lies all the time, and they're they're horrible, and they don't they don't really often have the people's best interests at heart. So why would you think that they would extend the people's best interests at heart in that particular reason? So you're like, oh, oh, that's how you got here. Yeah. Oh, all right. It's not that you're crazy. It's that you took these steps and they're just different steps to the ones that I took. Um, Yes. Here's where I think that becomes tricky, right, is when you're – Dan and I talk about this all the time because he Mm. is – an incredibly intelligent person who is really good at breaking things down and doing exactly the exercise you're talking about, mm-hmm. going back through things. He's got a history of, of um, in social work, so working with all different sorts of people and having oh. that that empathetic lens mm-hmm. um, is something he's really great at and also just being a really great critical thinker, right? Yeah. However, if we are having a conversation that's got to do with the female experience of the world, for example, now our status in that conversation is not the same yeah. because obviously it's highly emotive for me and there are things that you just can't explain to someone. So you'll never know what it's like growing up as a woman in Australia. I'll never know what it's like growing up as a gay man in Australia. Like we just have to like believe what each other says about that experience, but some of it can't be articulated. Like it's really because it's the water you swim in, right? Yeah, correct. And so when 
when you're having those conversations and you're trying to look at something really analytically in that way, if one person finds that conversation emotionally charged, but the other sort of has the gift of being able to be more kind of cold and analytical about it, yeah, that that's when you start shouting at each other or 100%. I start shouting at you. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> because you feel misunderstood because you're trying to explain something that's not explainable. Yeah, 100%. And, yeah, I yeah, I very much agree with you on that. And I think, like, I think to, to, like, circle back to the show, I think one of the things that I really wanted to do with that show was help some people understand what it is like to be a a gay male in Australia of my age. Mm. Um, and that and sort of explain it's not just about who you have sex with. It's so much more than that. It's like a community. It's uh, like I say in the show, it's literally the veil that I view the world through and the veil that the world views me back. And so it's like, it's so much more than just, oh, I have sex with guys. Um, that is my favorite part about it. Yeah, you're very good at I'm it. I'm so good at yeah. it. I'm so good at it. Um, it's my favorite. I loved nom, 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 nom uh, for days. I could do that. I could do that until I stopped eating. But it's like, but like that is one of the things that I really, I really wanted to do with that show was sort of explain there is more to being gay than just sleeping with guys here is like the history like and it's and it's because of context it's because of history um and one of the ways that I did that in that show was sort of mapping it not mapping it but like I guess pseudo comparing it to being Jewish uh especially like in the war and stuff and one of the reasons I did all of that um, is because my mum doesn't really understand. Like, she's super supportive of me, but she does not understand what it is like to be gay and doesn't really care. Um, as long as I'm happy and, like, healthy, that's all she really cares about. Um, but I would like her to understand that it is more than just, oh, this is my boyfriend. It's yeah. also like, hey, here's the history that I carry with me and... It was her dad who, like I talked about in the show, so, like, she grew up understanding what it's like to be Jewish uh, and to be on the run from the Nazis. So I was like, okay, if I can get that thing and then put it with that thing, then maybe she'll understand a little bit more. And so that's sort of, like, that was one of the main goals in the show. Wow. Yeah. Instead of going, hey, (laughs) being gay is like being Jewish. They are not the same thing. But here are some similarities and here are the similarities in this show. Um, I assume your mum came and saw the show. Yes. Did you talk about it afterwards? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't really have time. She was like, she was like in and out. Um, No, she really liked it. She was like, oh, it was very good. (laughs) I'm like, okay. (laughs) Do you want to have that conversation with her and tell her that that part of the reason you wrote the show was Wanting her to understand. Yeah, and I saw her a couple of days ago and I just forgot to bring it up. Um, Mum and I, like, are very... I love my mum to death. Um, We're very similar people and that we are both very hot-headed. We're both, like, we love an argument. 
Um, and so we do spend a lot of time not arguing with each other, but like having heated discussions once we've had two or three wines. Sure. To the point where my stepdad has to leave the room and he's like, ugh, can't hear the television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's because, I mean, I, I know your mum, obviously, um, and she's very, very funny. Yes. <laughs> very dry sense of humour, but but and no no shade to mama. Shade away. <laughs> <laughs> to mama Andy here. Um, but not super warm, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it, I mean, yes, she is, but like in her own way. In sure. that like, and I think like those those moments of warmth, uh, because she's just not like constantly hugging you, the moments of warmth are like really special because like you know that she like does mean to me. Like, oh, okay, cool. Like I, one of my favorite moments was I, my friend Marcus and I were headlining Midsummer Festival one year and it was about to happen. It was like, it was in January and I was at mum's house in December and we were just like having some cocktails on the balcony and she was drinking a cocktail and smoking a cigarette. And I turned to her and I just went, oh, I completely forgot to tell you, uh, Marcus and I are headlining an arts festival next month. And without missing a beat, she just went, did I ask? <laughs> <laughs> And I it's so fabulous. Was, it was the funniest thing. And I pierced myself <laughs> laughing. And she literally takes a drag of the cigarette, exhales, sips the drink, looks at me and goes, well, did I? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, she followed it up. She doubled down. <laughs> so like stuff like that, very funny. It makes her seem like she doesn't care. But then like I went inside and there's like a framed poster of like our show hanging in the hallway and it's like front and center. And I just like, like bawled my eyes. I was like, I didn't even know that you had this. And she's like, yeah, I, I got it from your house and I framed it and I put it up. It's like my favorite thing. Like, okay. So like yeah. she, <laughs> there is love there. There's also humor there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't mean to um, in, at all insinuate no, no, that no, she no. doesn't, love, doesn't you. love you. <laughs> What's with that? Well, <laughs> But I, I, I guess just the, the reason I mention it is because I I can't imagine you finishing that show and then you two crying and falling into each other's arms and no. having a heartfelt conversation <laughs> about it, I guess is the point no. I was trying to make. And also, like, I think the thing with that show and the thing that I'm really proud about that show is that it has sort of these, the, the one, it has both effects on people and that they come away going, that was really fun and really silly. And then like an hour later, they're like, hang on. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> or like, uh, yeah. Wait a minute, I learned a lesson. Wait. <laughs> hang on, I learned things. Um, yeah, or that like, or people, I think like uh, I really liked the balance of being like quite, I guess like sentimental and like heavy with sheer stupidity. Yeah. So I think like if you don't have the capacity for that the heavy stuff. It's not all heavy and it's sort of littered throughout it. So you can kind of switch off during it. You're yeah. like, that was fun. He played a witch. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. It's very well balanced in that way. Um, were there any things that you were nervous to put in there about yourself, nervous how you might be received? Or were there any things that didn't make the cut because you were like, I don't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was nothing that made the cut. No, it, it's sort of, 
I realized pretty, I'd say like a third of the way into the writing process that I needed to go whole hog. Like I needed to go all in or it wasn't going to work. I couldn't just be like, oh, yeah, I'd like people to be like this. Um, We've all said some dumb things. Um, I needed to be like, no, I've said homophobic things. I've said transphobic things. I've said racist things. I've said bigoted things. Um, I've done them very loudly. I've said them very openly, like in front of my friends, outside, within a group setting. Like I needed people to, I needed to go to that spot because if you don't go there, it doesn't work. None of it is paid off. And then you get to be, and then you're just that preachy person yeah. that is just like, oh no, I, I've, yeah, I've said some bad things. What bad things? What have you said? Um, and that's why I list them in the show. <laughs> like, not explicitly what I've said because I don't think there's a reason to. But like, yeah, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't worried about putting that sort of stuff in there because I knew that the show wasn't going to work if I didn't. So I had to put it in there. Um, and then nothing really. There's like sketches that got cut, but they were like. Not good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> not um, airing your dirty laundry. Yeah, yeah. No, no. There's one sketch that that got cut that just kind of got cut for time, and it didn't like have a spot. And so I think it's going in the next show, which is nice. <laughs> so it has a home. Oh, what's the yeah. next show? The next show is called Killing Time, and uh, it's about death. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it's about it's about the preciousness of life and how important uh, what we have is and that you shouldn't squander any moments because you don't know how many moments you have left. So why this topic as the next thing to explore? Because I, I was on holiday in Adelaide after Comedy Festival and I knew I had to start writing a new show and I literally just thought, what is the one thing that you are super interested in writing about? What, uh, what drives you? And I thought for like 30 seconds and I went, I always feel like I'm running out of time. Mm. I always feel like I haven't done enough. Um, I'm constantly annoyed that fear has held me back for so long that I didn't like pursue like music when I was a child. Like I like all through high school, I would write songs. Why did I not like, and I didn't double down on that and like professionally explore it because fear essentially, because Mm. like it was the nineties and I was like, oh, gay people can't be pop stars. Flash forward to <laughs> now <laughs> when it's only gay boys. <laughs> and also most of the straight people. Yes, stage <laughs> wink. Um, yeah, so, and it's just like stuff like, like, why did I not pursue acting harder? Why did I, so I just, I just always have this overhanging, like, fear that, like, I've wasted time and that time is running out. And it's not like a midlife crisis thing, even though I am in the middle of my life. It's like, fuck, I only have 40 years left. I feel I haven't squandered 40 years because I've had a great time, but also like, and like you should never compare yourself to other people, but I'm the same age as Chris Hemsworth and he's from Phillip Island. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, what the fuck have I done? And like... <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Look, 
different monkeys. Now we're all descended from monkeys. Different monkey. Yeah. <laughs> That's a different that monkey. That is a different monkey. And like you you should never compare. And I don't compare, but it is that thing. I'm like, what? Like I don't own property. I live in a share house. I'm 40. Um, what have I done? What am I going to do? And so, uh, yeah, it just, it's constantly hung over me. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to write a show about that because I'm really interested in that. And it's going to be stupid and it's going to be queer because also queer people view um, death very differently to straight people because our history is so marred with it. Yeah. And so intrinsically linked with it. Um, you know, the the AIDS pandemic that continues on, um, uh, the fact that like, you know, we were hunted and killed and still are hunted and killed. That people are like as recently as like three days ago, a woman in America was shot and killed by uh, somebody else because she had a pride flag over her shop window. Mm. She's not gay. She's just an ally. And it's sort of like because our history is so intrinsically linked with that, I was like, oh, yeah, I will write a show about death. There's a lot of like queer stuff in that. There's a lot of me in that. I'm going to do that. So it's called Killing Time and the premise is um, welcome to games night at my house. I'm just the host. I'm not running games night. Uh, and I do like the the intro and the acknowledgement of country and, uh, and I say, look, the guy that's running games night is on his way, but we'll just like do this. And then I get a phone call and it turns out he's running late. He's running about an hour late, maybe 50 minutes late, uh, probably not longer than that. So in the meantime, let's have some fun. And so it's sort of waiting for Godot. It's also, what do you do in the time that you have? You're clever. <laughs> You're so clever. <laughs> I, I love this as a concept because it's something I think about all the time. Two things. One, the phrase killing time, I hate it. Like, mm. because like it's so precious. It's so precious, right? It's all we have. So yeah. if I'm looking for ways to kill it, yeah. that's fucked. Yeah. And I find myself also doing, it's kind of another version of the same thing. You know, when you've got like a particularly busy, like a couple of weeks or month and you say, oh, I just got to get through this week. Oh, I just got to get through this month. Yeah. But that doesn't fucking end. Like that goes no. forever. There's another, yeah, that's that's why I was late today because I was sleeping in and I was like, you know what? I've not had a sleep in for two months. Uh, I'm really sorry. I'm going to be 10 minutes late. I'm gonna I'm going to sleep in. And, and I did, and it was great. Yeah, sometimes you got to do it. Also, as I said, 10 minutes late is like a dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but. Anyway, sorry, death. Yes. You were. Sorry, death. Yeah. yeah. We're well, <laughs> <laughs> no, just talking about the, the, this concept of, of the preciousness of time mm. in general, I think is really important and so smart because it's on one hand, so fucking obvious, right? There's yeah. like all sayings around it and we, you know, it's a trope that's so common, blah, 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 all you've got is time and time is precious. Yeah. But we don't necessarily like really feel and understand that all that often because you get so caught up in, as I said, like got to get through this week, got to get through the end of the month. All yeah. the summer's coming. I'm just going to wish away this three months. Yeah, which is wild. The thing that, that gets me and this freaks me out is that, I've got about 13,000 M&Ms left and every M&M is a week. And I might have 
or it's less than that. It's like 11,000 or something. And I might have 11,000 left, maybe. And they go so quickly. Yeah. That's not that's not the right number. Can I do Yeah, it doesn't sound right to me, but um she's not a maths girl. No, hang on. <laughs> hang on. So 2000. I have 2000 left. I have if I'm lucky, I have yeah. 2000 M&Ms left. So that's even less. Yeah. How insane is that? And that's if I'm lucky. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like much, but like 50 goes in every year. And you're like, oh, God, oh, that's that's a lot. Oh, crap. Yeah. This is why I decided, so Dan and I's grand plan, and we're slowly working towards it, is to spend three months of the year every year in the States. So basically we Amazing. just don't do Melbourne winter because. Oh, heaven. <laughs> right. Take me with you. Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see. I'm going to be polite because this is being recorded, but absolutely <laughs> fucking not. I can't think of anything I'd want to do less. You can come for a weekend. I put eating a bowl of glass above that. Num, 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 num. Oh, shardy num, today, num, darling. Delicious. Yes, this is in case Andy gets here. <laughs> this is how we ward off evil spirits. Andy is the evil spirit. <laughs> great. Anyway, America, great. Love it. Because, so I've spent... 38 years of my life hating winter. I get really fucking depressed and sad in mm-hmm. the winter months and I have tried to reframe it in my mind to be like, what are the things I like about winter? Mmm, furry coats, no. open fireplaces, red wine. But the fact of the matter is I just hate it <laughs> and I've not been successful yeah. at reframing my fucking attitude about it. So I'm like, you know what? Move on. Life is short. <laughs> Give up, move 2000 on. 2,000 M&Ms. Yeah. I'm just going to not have winter. Great. If I can. Obviously, this is like a bit of a lofty dream at the moment, but we were just there for a, a month. Next year, we're going to go for six weeks and just eke it out a little bit at a time. That's beautiful. Work it out. But, yeah, it doesn't always have to be, I think, or at least I've been guilty of overcomplicating the thing and putting a lot of pressure on myself yeah. to be able to see things with like 100% gratitude 100% of the time. Sometimes things you know, suck. Yeah, exactly. Winter's just shit and I don't like it. I yeah, don't have to like leave. become grateful for winter <laughs> no. if I can work out a way to not have winter. Don't. I love this. Yeah. Yeet, yeet yourself out of the city. Winter sucks. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> me too. But it took me this long. It took me my whole life to be like, oh, you don't, you can relieve some of the pressure on yourself. It's so, it's so fascinating that it's, cause I think the same thing as well. It's taken me so long to realize how precious time is. And you just like in your twenties. And I would say until like your mid thirties, there's just, there's no pressure because you think you're going to live forever. It feels infinite. Yeah. Yeah. And time is a lot less meaningful until, you know, like until family starts dying um, and until like, like not, well, yeah, like if friends die, until you start to sort of like wake up and and feel like a shoulder hurts for no fucking reason. You're like- You are literally describing my morning. (laughs) You're like, ah, until, and when you start to realise how, 
fallible you are mm. and how delicate you could be the strongest person in the world and pneumonia will take you out. And it's just like, oh, I got to start taking care of myself. I have to start appreciating the time I have because no one is going to live forever. That's the deal. Very annoyingly, I've tried to change the contracts, but he won't let me. Turns out my soul is useless down there. Um, And (laughs) yeah, so. I think COVID had a big role to play in this as well. It certainly did for me in how I view time because you sort of feel cheated in a way. You know, you kind of feel cheated out of two years. And this is for us as, you know, mature people who have had those kind of key experience. Like imagine if that happened to us when we were like 14 to 16. Well, this is another thing as well that I was like thinking about and that like queer people, certainly from my perspective, do often feel cheated out of their childhoods. And it's one of, Mm -hmm. somebody once said like the reason why gay men in their 40s are so obsessed with like, teenage pop stars and Pokemon and video games and stuff like that is because we didn't have real childhoods. We spent our formative years and our childhoods pretending to be something that we were not and putting a great deal of effort into keeping a secret. And we cheated ourselves. We cheated it because society had cheated us. So we sort of didn't have that time Like we should have Mm. had that time Um, to the point where like I didn't have, like I watch Heartstopper now and I'm like, great. What's Heartstopper, sorry? Oh, it's a a very successful TV show on Netflix, Jasmine. (laughs) Okay. Oh, my God. Um, It's about. (laughs) Dan, edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, It's it's British and it's about, um, it's based on um, young adult novels and it's about a, a young gay love story. And they're in high school. And I never had that. Yeah. Because I grew up in a time where I couldn't have that. And that sucks. And I love watching it because I'm like, cool. Now we have representation for one. This show never would have existed in the 90s. Um, And two, I know people that did have boyfriends in high school, like that had this sort of life. And I didn't have that life. And that sucks. And so that's like another thing of like, oh, fucking I have been cheated. Time Mm. has cheated me. You know, like COVID cheated us all. I fucking cheated like time. Anyway, yeah. So. That's super interesting. I never quite thought of it from that perspective Mm. that you, like the amount of energy that that's asked of you to just hold back. Yeah. Being yourself. During your formative years. Yeah. To like. Well, this is it. When when you're working out what relationships, I mean, and I mean all sorts of relationships to your friends, to romantic interests, to authority figures, like who you can and can't trust and what that looks Mm -hmm. like. No wonder you're so fucked up. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Growing up, I learnt you can't trust anyone because I had a secret that I couldn't tell anyone. Yeah. I'm like, ugh sucks because <laughs> I lived in a world where uh, like that secret made me the villain. That secret made me dirty and it made me, um, yeah, uh, it made me a second-class citizen. Yeah. And so why would I tell anyone that secret if like the world was telling me that that's bad? 
I will just keep that to myself then. So yeah, a lot of energy goes into keeping it, worrying if other people are going to find out, uh, doing stuff behind closed doors, worrying if like that friendship has been affected, worrying if they're going to tell anyone. It's just constant. It's constant stress, yeah. like was constant stress. Yeah. Not anymore. Now it's great. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now, like hopefully what I get to do is like stand on stage and be the queer representation that I never got to have and make big, funny, stupid, um, queer-centric shows. I love it. It is almost like it's almost unbelievable looking back to the way the world was when we were in high school, it feels like yeah. it's just kind of imagine that having been true. Right. <laughs> like one of my <gasps> good example, um, my friend Kimba, who you've met, my mm-hmm. my token young friend. Hi. Hi, honey. <laughs> um, yep. So he got asked to uh, talk at an event at his university. He's doing a PhD about um, queer people in STEM. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was part of a panel with a bunch of other people um, just basically talking about the experience of being a queer person in STEM. And his experience has been it makes zero, it's made zero difference to my life. Yeah, great. Just no impact whatsoever. The other people on the panel were sort of, I would say, our age plus. Mm-hmm. Totally fucking different story. So yeah. we're talking about the the difference of a decade. Yeah. Um, and it's, and obviously individuals' experiences will be different. Yeah. But it's amazing to think that for someone in their like late 20s now, mm. that experience, and while I'm sure still, you know, it wasn't 100% smooth sailing, it's not at all like the weird yeah, it's not like, like scary closetedness of the nineties, and it's not. Yeah, because we we had to fight to get in the door, and that well, we didn't have to fight to get into the door. The generation before me fought to get into the door, but we had to fight. We then had to fight to get a seat at the table yeah. and then be heard. And the more I can do to make the world better for the next generation of people, the more I want to do. And that's like one of my sort of like uh, manifesto for like writing shows now is high concept queer stupidity. As long as it ticks those three things, it has to be queer. It's going to be queer anyway because I'm on stage Um, and I'm gay and whether I like it or not, that's a political statement in and of itself. So I may as well make the show queer and queer centric. Um, and then I like high concept stuff like Welcome to Games Night, the whole thing's a metaphor. Well, like in Am I the Drama, the whole thing is like you're on a new ride at Warner Brothers Movie World. That's like so stupid. <laughs> but And also like make it dumb. Make it dumb. <laughs> I want dumb. Where do these ideas come from? So like the framing for both of those things is mm. fucking brilliant. Thank you. And it sits, again, in that beautiful nexus of Stupidity <laughs> and high concept. And high concept. Yeah. Does does shit like this just pop into your brain? Do you nah. have a process that you go through to get there? Where does yeah, it about, come from? About yes. <laughs> um, I it took a long. It didn't take as long for Am I the Drama to be like, oh, it's a ride at movie Warner Brothers Movie World. Um, it was going. I can't remember what it was going to be, but that sort of like came to me pretty early on, and I was like, oh, this is. 
an easy way to tell this story, then I can go through time um, and I can sort of be like a, a TED talk of like, now we're doing this, now we're doing this, now we're doing this. So it traverses through time by physically like moving like the ride. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Um, Killing Time took me two and a half months to come up with that and about seven different ideas that I was like, this is a solid idea, but this is not correct. And you just know when it's Mm. not right and then you know when it is right. And there are a bunch of like smaller ideas. I had one idea that was um, there was a, there's a bomb on stage that is ticking down um, and but like the, the clock is unreliable and like keeps like swapping times like throughout the show. And I was like, mm-hmm. that's interesting because I knew that it was called Killing Time and I knew what it was going to be about. Um, so like coming up with that framework, I was like, all right, the, the bomb's interesting. Um, then it was going to be... Uh, solving a crime that like time had literally been killed and it was going to be like everyone is like a detective's assistant and we're solving an actual crime uh and then it was going to be jury duty everyone was a juror and we were trying to like again like there was like a crime that had been committed and we we're like trying to solve that or like um so that there was like evidence um that I could use and so those were the ideas that like were the closest Mm. to like being the final ideas but I was like these aren't it but I will work on them anyway and so I did like some work on them I was like "Mm," and I just knew I just knew that they weren't it and I was like ah what is it and yeah it's just a it's just a process of like just coming up with as many ideas as possible and then and then I hit games night and I was like, oh, sort of like we could do like waiting for Godot sort of thing. I was like, oh, that satisfies the bomb ticking down thing. So because I knew I wanted the framing device of like uh, running out of time. And I was like, oh, well, that satisfies the bomb. So I don't need the bomb. Um, and I wanted the audience to be part of it uh, in that like, you know, you are welcome to games night. You're all here in the same way that like, you're all, we are all on the same ride. We're all in this together. So they're not just like, come in, sit down. It's an audience. Yeah. Um, cause I, I like leading the audience in and doing the acknowledgement of country myself somehow in the show. Um, so I was like, so though, those were like really clear. I must have that. Um, and then I hit games night. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. And then like an hour later I was like, it's definitely that. Yeah. Great, cool. Are there any particular markers? Like I know obviously I don't write comedy shows, but like similar <laughs> things like, you know, maybe I'm um, working on it. Like what would be a great metaphor for a client for a certain message they're trying to get across or something? And same sort of thing, like you'll have some few like this is kind of it but not mm. quite. And usually like when it clicks and it's like, it's almost like a sensation of like a floodgate opening yep. and all of the ideas just kind of pour out and, yep, it, yep, yep, and yep. it just goes like click, 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 yep, click, click, click. you're like, oh, it was always that. Cool, 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 cool. I just couldn't see it. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of like liken it to um, an archaeologist like underco- like uncovering bones. Oh, and you're like, yeah. You just get like a couple of bones. You're like, I mean, it's bones. And you're just like a bit more and you're like, it's still just fucking bones. What the fuck is this? And then you're like, okay, oh, it's a rib cage. Okay, so it's something that has a rib cage. Oh, I still don't know. And then like 
you get like the head, you're like, it's a fucking T-Rex. Great. And you know that it's a T-Rex then. Yeah. So then you know where the other bones are. So you don't have to yes. like oh, I fucking love look anywhere else. You're like, all the other bones are here, here it is. And there might be other creatures and other bones buried nearby, but you don't need to look at them because you're just now looking at this one. So you're like, cool, 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 cool. Great. There it is. It's the T-Rex. Yeah. So. Oh, I love that analogy. Yeah. I also, this, <laughs> and this is, the show is also structured around um, the song We Don't Talk About Bruno from Encanto. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know it. I'm just letting you down on Dan all fronts today. Um, <laughs> we Don't Talk About Bruno is a huge hit from Encanto. Have you not seen Encanto? No. Jessamy Elizabeth G, that <laughs> kills me. <laughs> it's a good guess. It's not a, I call everyone, uh, your middle name is Rose? It is. Yes. I know yours. It's a Dudley. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, Andrew Dudley Boom Boom Ballock. Yes. <laughs> call him. That's what they call me on the streets, baby. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this great song called We Don't Talk About Bruno. Um, The whole concept of Encanto is it's a magical family. Everyone in the family has a special gift. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was an uncle called Bruno who could see the future. And um, he saw a couple of things and then was banished from the family. And this one of this, the niece is like the protagonist and she's asking the family, what happened to Bruno? And they're all like, we don't talk about Bruno. And the whole song is, we don't talk about Bruno, but here's what happened. <laughs> ah, oh, clever. It's a great song, but I broke the song down into five parts. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I might structure the show in these sort of like five parts because it ends with what's called a madrigal, which is um, a, a type of chorus. Um, and I was like, I want the show to end with that. So I'm going to structure it like this. And then I just looked up five act structures and I was like, ah, this is the structure of the show anyway. So I've just like, the show is like already structured. Now I'm just like filling in things. It's great. It's as soon as like you find that stuff, I'm like, oh, a roadmap already exists. And then it turns out that like, a year ago, I had already been studying five-act structures anyway and had written like a bunch of notes on them. So now all of those previous notes are already on my door. So I had already done, like a year ago, I had already done work on five-act structures and I'm now writing a five-act structure using all of the work that I already did. So I'm like, ah, oh, I've already done this. <laughs> what a gift. Yeah. I just was working on it and I didn't know. <laughs> what does your workspace look like? When you are like in this stage right now, what does your workspace look like while you're at this stage of writing? I will show you a picture, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I love cue cards. So because I'm uh, real, like you, I'm visual. Um, and so I need to see, like especially like structures of shows, I need to see structurally what they look like. Um, so I can then like play around within those boundaries because that's just way easier. Um, so the back of my door at the moment is covered in, uh, cue cards with like titles and then writing underneath it. And we've just locked in the story and structure for the Fringe Festival show that we're currently writing called Linda for One More Week, um, which is so dumb. It's so funny. And so it's not what you, it's about a woman who dies and then gets sent back because there was a clerical error. So she has an extra week. Um, but you never see Linda in the show. 
And it's just everything that happens around Linda and because of her existence and because of the choices that she makes. And it is nuts. There are clairvoyants. It's set on a cruise ship. There are clairvoyants. There are like massage therapists. There's a magic show. There are pirates. Like it's dumb. And it's also like real sad. (laughs) So it's sort of like all of these things. And we finally structured it last night. And it's like 22 cue cards sort of like forming this like big pattern, like on my coffee table. So that's what it looks like. So I can like visualize me like, okay, cool. Each of these cue cards is a scene. So I know where the scene starts. I know what the next scene is. I know the story for all of these different characters. Now I can see it. Now we just need to like fill in the blanks essentially. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm trying to picture it. Cause I know like with, am I the drama? Part of what was so fucking clever about it was like all of the callbacks and stories within stories and mm-hmm. it's kind of playing with time. So that's because I didn't write it in order. So yeah, I okay. specifically, which is the same, which I'm doing with Killing Time at the moment. So I specifically did not write it in order. So I had like um, like the scene at the end with um, uh whatever his name, uh, Dave Stu Dan or whatever his name is, the like horrible Australian like uh, far right-wing commentary reporter person. Um, I had stuff like he, I wrote like towards the end and I had already written like a bunch of stuff and I was like, oh, I can like, his show would do plugs and I've already done like plugs in a previous sketch so I will just do the same plugs again. Um, and then there's like, like a, a Todd McKinney joke that like goes throughout it. I'm like, oh, I can just say this here again. Cause I've already done it here or like stuff that I'd put at the end that I'd written first. I was like, oh, I can just plant that over here at the start. So like, rather than going, oh, now I'm going to hear, now I'm, now I'm writing here, now I'm writing here, now I'm writing here. I sort of wrote it in disparate sections, knowing where they would kind of sit but because I worked on things, coming at things from different angles, I could do that. And it was like still like really soft and malleable. So that's how I did that. It it <laughs> makes my brain hurt oh. thinking about it, but it's so impressive. So at the moment you're writing Killing Time. Yeah. You're writing Linda for one more week. Yeah. You're still got, you still got some Am I the Drama shows coming up for Fringe. We're doing, I'm doing Am I the Drama for uh, Fringe Festival at Trades Hall. uh, And then I'm taking it to Adelaide Fringe Festival next year as well and doing some more things with it. How do you hold three (laughs) shows in your head? Great idea. (laughs) Um, They're very different. I'm co writing Linda. So that process is wildly different in that like the scenes do not take any time to write because it's just Justin and I riffing with a record. And then we go, cool, that was funny. Write that down. So that's sort of super easy to do. The structure of it took ages because it's like four or five sets of characters that all like intertwine. And it's very like, that needs to happen because that happened and that needs to happen because that happened. So it's like, it's the most complicated structure that we've ever, that I've ever written. Um, So, and I guess like Killing Time and Linda are both kind of about death. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of. You did just turn 40, didn't you? I did, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. So I don't know, like 
Killing Time is kind of on hold a bit for the next like seven weeks while we finish off Linda. Um, but like, am I the dramas? I've already written it. So I just need like one, I just need to learn it again and then do a tech rehearsal for it. So that's kind of easy. So it's not, it sounds like an insane amount of work. It's not that bad. It's the producing that kills me. <laughs> it's the constant emails, Jessamy. Yeah, yeah. And oh, just and just organising tech rehearsals and organising writing sessions and then organising like, oh, fuck, we need props, we need sets, we need, um, we need new soundscape, we need like all of, like all of this to like put a show up. But it will be up. <laughs> Mark my words, it will be up, trust me. I believe you. I yeah. do. Do you start writing? We we should probably finish up shortly, but oh, sure. I just want to know. Mm. So basically as soon as you finish a show at the comedy festival, you kind of start writing on the next one? Normal people don't. <laughs> okay, okay. But how long does it take you usually to like get a show, to write a show, have it rehearsed, memorised, the memory, pa- the memory part is fine because I'm fine with scripts, but also I've written it, so I sort of know the beats anyway. Sure. Um, so the memorising is not so bad. Um, the writing of it, weirdly, Fringe Festival, uh, like, made me start earlier. So normally I would, like, I would probably start writing a show about September, maybe a bit beforehand, but... I started writing Killing Time like almost two weeks after Comedy Festival finished because I was like, I don't know how much time I've got to work on this until I need to start writing Linda. Yeah, and okay. so I was like, and same thing happened with Am I the Drama? I thought I, one was going to do it for Adelaide Fringe Festival, which is slightly before Comedy Festival. Um, and I also thought I was going to be working on a new show. Oops, sorry. Um, I also you don't th- need to apologise oh, to the okay. table. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, I kicked the table. What are you, a woman? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, I thought uh, I was going to be in a writer's room in November with Ruben, um, but that didn't end up happening. So I thought I had like le- way less time than I did for Am I the Drama? So I started super early. So it probably like three, four months. Okay. But Killing Time is going to be way bigger because Killing Time will have a set, like a full set that interacts with me. Whoa. Do you make this set? I might have to. (laughs) I... Also, I I was at one point going to have a revolving stage and... Do it, do it, do it. Well, I can't, <laughs> like, I would have to make that. Yeah, and I didn't okay. know, like, how much it would cost or how much, like, the sound it would make, stuff like that. I was like, oh, there's too many variables. Um, but there's a company in Vegas that, like, prefabs them and can ship them um, and it's the perfect size. And I was like, great but it would cost me 30,000 Australian dollars to get it over here, to buy it and get it over here. I'm like, I believe in myself, but that is ridiculous. So not doing that. I thought it was a little bit extra that we paid like $70 for our prize wheel that we brought to the live show. Mm, mm, (laughs) No, I, because it's like 10,000 US dollars to buy it and then they have to ship it and it's metal. 
And it's like, like one and a half by two and a half meters. Like it's a big fucking, so I was like, oh no, thank you. Uh, but this new set, yeah, I will probably, I will either build or I will get a set designer to build it because it will be, it will um, move. Do you like doing that stuff? When you got oh, yeah. here and you were very kindly complimenting my um, beautiful pod studio slash yes. room here. Yes. And we were talking about, so I, I work with the interior designer, which was fucking awesome to do mm. because they just know what they're doing. Right? Yeah. It was amazing. And, and as I said, actually like much more affordable than I thought it would be. But talking about that, like what do you outsource and what do you yeah. kind of learn or you're prepared to put the time into learning because you would find it enjoyable. Do you uh, like doing that stuff with, because that feels fun yeah, to me. Yeah, this is the sets. first time that I will have a set. Okay. So this is, okay. so I will probably be a nightmare. So I'll probably be very hands-on. I would absolutely outsource. Um, I have a few friends who are set designers. So I will probably talk to them about like, what and it's further down the line because I still don't know what I need the set to do. Um, yeah, but I know sure. it will be set in my lounge room, and I know that like I need a lamp, I need like a boom box, I need a painting, I need a couch. So I know I need like those things, and then it's like, okay, well, like, how is the painting going to move? Do we need the couch or can we have like an armchair? Um, how is the lamp on? electronics, like, um, what do you call it? A remote control. What am I doing? What is this move? No one can see this. What is this? A remote control. Um, yeah. So it's sort of like, okay, what do I, I think it'll be a process of like, what can the set do? And then writing like sketches around that as much as making the set do what I want the sketches to do. So it'll be like, it'll feed into each other. Um, so I think it will be a case of like, I will have to help. I will be, I will be there. Yes. As yeah. my, I can't just outsource it, but like that shit's fun for me. That, cause that's like a fun creative space that I've never been inside of. So, oh my God. Yeah. Cause yeah. I want, I want the set to be essentially magic. My, my brief is I want an enchanted lounge room. I love it. And what an <laughs> exciting like opportunity to have that back and forth too, when it comes to idea generation, like right? surely you'll come up with stuff based on the functionality of the set that you wouldn't have yeah. otherwise. Yeah. And it's also like, it also makes kind of writing sketches easier because I'm like, all right, well, what do I have in my lounge room that I can like yes. make something else? Like, oh, I've got like a broom. Okay. Is that a wizard's staff? Or is that like, you know, a witch's broom? Or is that <laughs> a pole? <laughs> yeah. This is why he gets paid the big bucks, yeah. guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of takes away that like blank sheet of paper yeah. fear. There's yeah, something yeah. to start Yeah, from. I can write like five different sketches over uh, about a pole. <laughs> I bet you can. Um, <laughs> all right, my beautiful Andy Bellock. Hey, thank you so much for coming thank in and being so an Alice imposter me. with me today. This was great. I hope um, some of that is salvageable. <laughs> We'll see. We'll um, see. No, it was an absolute joy. Thank you so much. Um, all of these amazing things that you're doing, can you, uh, can people book, you can, can they book, give you money for them? Please. I would love <laughs> so much money. Um, I'm only doing Am I the Drama for five nights. Um, the last five nights of Fringe Festival um, in 
the Corner Shop, I believe it's called, at the Trades Hall. Mm-hmm. This is Melbourne Fringe Festival. This is Melbourne Fringe Festival for mm-hmm. our local listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, and tickets are available to that online. Just go to Melbourne Fringe and search for Am I the Drama? Same thing with Linda for one more week. We're doing it for seven nights in a row at the Motley Bar House in Carlton, which is a beautiful venue. I love living there. It's, it's so much fun. Um, and they're so kind. Uh, so we're doing that uh, every night at 9 p.m., um, for a week and then I have two nights off and then I do 8.15 every night um, except 7.15 on Sunday nights for Am I the Drama? And you can just go to Melbourne Fringe website and you can find Linda and Am I the Drama and they're all available right now. And if you see Andy, please buy him a coffee. He's going to be very, very, very tired. I I work in a cafe so I am constantly caffeinated, thank Christ. Like otherwise I would just... <laughs> fall into a heap and be like, that is me done. Take me now. Well, you are quite old. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> right. I have to leave. Thank you, Jessamy Rose. It's been a pleasure. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Imposter Syndrome Club. Please follow us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're feeling extra kind, rates and review. Or if you got any insights or value from this, share with a friend. You can also find us on Instagram at ImpostorPod or online at ImpostorSyndromeClub.com.